Maximizing Your Potential. This is the Human Performance Podcast with Dr. Craig Duncan. Hi, everyone. It's Craig here. Today, I'm interviewing my friend, Adam Hewitt. It was uh, a fun interview. Adam's a academic in the sports science area, but also involved in professional sport as an analyst. So it's interesting from that perspective. We talk about a lot of things to do with sport, but even if you're not into sport, you could take this uh, some of this stuff away. And just from a purely human performance perspective, uh, it's worth listening to. Anyway, hope you enjoy it. everyone it's Craig here and welcome to the human performance podcast into our uh, interview series and I've got a good friend of mine today here and that's Dr. Adam Hewitt. Uh, Adam and I have known each other a long time and Adam's got a a great history. Uh, He works at the Australian Catholic University as a lecturer in sports science um, and he's had a vast array of experiences in the human performance area uh, from working at the Australian Institute of Sport and then through multiple uh, clubs, uh, professional clubs uh, across codes in a, uh, Australian uh, Australian football um, and also in the real football. Uh, and his PhD was in performance analysis. So we'll touch on that, but we'll also touch on uh, Adam's journey uh, throughout his career. And, uh, and then, yeah, and we'll just chat wherever that leads us. How are you, mate? Yeah, good. Thanks, Craig. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, so you're based up in Brisbane now, but uh, born and bred in South Australia. How is Brisbane treating you? Yeah, it's been great. This is my, I think it's four years that we've been up here now. So I guess, um, yeah, originally born and bred in Adelaide, did my undergraduate and I guess some of my training in a sense through, through University of South Australia down in Adelaide. Um, but I guess as most people in the industry, it's, you know, you, you do go on a bit of a journey and, you know, have to relocate a, a number of different times. So went from, went from Adelaide after I, well, I hadn't actually even finished my honours um, on, the, on the promise to my supervisors that I would finish my honours. Um, was lucky enough or fortunate enough to, to gain a position at the Australian Institute of Sport in the Department of Physiology. So moved to Canberra, which was, um, again, an interesting experience. You know, I was supposed to be there for 12 months and I think it was nearly seven years later that I actually left um, back to Adelaide for, for a period with Port Adelaide Football Club and got to work with, with Darren Burgess and some really good people at the at Port Adelaide Football Club down there. And then uh, up to Brisbane. So, yeah, Brisbane's been great so far. Okay, cool. I mean, what got you interested in sports science in the first place? Because your undergraduate was in sports science. Yeah, so I guess part of my my original, so I actually started a secondary maths and science degree, mm. um, wanting to do a, I guess, originally a PE teacher, and then they changed the requirements in Adelaide that to do PE teaching, you had to do 
a human movement degree or an exercise sports science degree, which halfway through that changed to a human movement degree. Um, and then you did a, a two-year master's or something like that. So, But actually in my third year, I was playing uh, a reasonably high level of, uh, in the National Touch League yeah. and ruptured my Achilles halfway through a game. And then, so that was, yeah, probably October of my third year, I think it was. And then from that, it, I guess that I had some major complications. I had an infection and, and all sorts of things that uh, wasn't a standard, I guess, Achilles rupture that kind of, while I was laid up, really got me interested in, I guess, some of that, that why, you know, like I started reading some journal articles about Achilles operations and, and tendon repairs and um, rehab for that and so forth. And, and in a sense, that kind of sparked my interest in the, in the research and in the, in the performance side of things is to, from that, I, I spent the next 12 months, I guess, completing my own rehab and also, you know, in a sense, started writing my, my first programs in, I was, you know, got to write some programs for the, the team that I was playing for in the National Touch League, mm. basically wrote some of their team trainings and, and the remote programs. We were spread out all over, you know, being based in South Australia, that wasn't a huge touch community compared to sort of some of the Eastern states. So we actually had a combined team of South Australia, Western Australia, Northern Territory. Mm. So trying to write programs for people spread out all over that. Um, and again, starting to try and apply what we'd learned in the undergrad and how it actually translates. And yeah, it kind of got my, got my interest in some of the research. So I started to look into how I can, I guess, use that as part of my career rather than going into the PE teaching. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. And, and I think a lot of us started out that way, um, you know, because anyone listening uh, today would probably remember the PE teachers were normally the they seem to have the best life at school if we if we look back on that and 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 we must think that the transition into exercise and sports science what it is now you know the precursor to that was basically uh, phys ed degrees and still the world over a lot of a lot of that is the place that we start and um what was your honors going to be in uh originally i was working with uh professor john buckley down at um at UniSA and again I, I guess I kind of went in there wanting to do something originally I wanted to do something in um, Achilles tendon research mm. uh, but we didn't really have anything set up at UniSA to do that I went in there with a whole range of different sports performance type projects and wanting to I guess solve the to solve all the big problems of the world in in the world of human performance back then um, but probably you know again well, like a good supervisor, I guess, you know, he, he let me run with it for a while. And, and then we kind of realized that that wasn't going to work in a 12 month project or an eight month project for research for honors yeah. and ended up starting doing some stuff on some bovine colostrum, which was something that John Buckley was working on at the time, which I guess, to be honest, wasn't, wasn't something that I was interested in. And we kind of plotted along through it. And then when I got to the AIS, um, I got to work with the men's and women's football programs there. And uh, there was a project that Doug Tumulty, that um, some people may remember, but it sort of worked a lot with Ron Smith back in the, 
in the AIS, almost that golden generation in a sense. Mm-hmm. And he had a project in uh, some, uh, like a, a football skills program, program that he'd been developing, how you can test some football skills in the AIS indoor football arena. Yeah. yeah. So that ended up being my my final project was was kind of in that um we kind of tested some AIS players and some some local uh, state institute players as well. Actually, it's interesting you just mentioned his name because uh, I was at a, at a meeting today with uh, my friend Peter Hug, who used to be uh, up in that area as well that you would know, and he, he mentioned John's name and uh, and Ron's, of course, because Ron's now the technical director of uh, Australian football, um, and I think they're they're going backwards to move forwards, if uh, if that makes sense. Uh, now, that's where we first met when you were working with the Matildas, because you were the analyst with the Matildas, um, and you were working with another good friend of ours, Tim, Tim Rogers. Yeah. Um, and, uh, I mean, what was that experience like? Because you're at the very uh, early stages, I, I suppose, not early stages of women's football, but when it really started to transition and the Matildas started to become... Uh, quite a well-known team. Yeah, again, I, you know, I guess some of it I've just been, uh, you know, so fortunate to work and have some some amazing mentors to, to kind of work with. So, you know, people like, you know, Doug Tumulty, uh, Ron Smith, the other people at the AIS, you know, head of the Department of Physiology, um, Alan Hahn. So that's kind of where I started and... They really didn't have anybody uh, looking after the men's and women's program back then. Doug was kind of transitioning into retirement. And so I was just, you know, fortunate enough and, and I guess built some of those relationships that, that Adrian Sandtrack was the Matildas, had just been appointed Matildas coach um, and had uh, a couple of camps where basically my role was initially just to run fitness testing. You know, like they'd come into camp, have a fitness test, and then they'd go off and play a tournament. And it was just through, in a sense, I think, showing an interest in, in what they were doing and having conversations with, with Adrian about, you know, who they, how many players they take, how many staff they take, and, and you know, not, not nagging in a sense, but just showing an interest in, and developing that relationship that I was fortunate enough to, that um, we wrote a proposal about what, what role I could play with the Matildas and they are off to a, to a camp or sorry, to a tournament in the Canada and the U S I think it was. And yeah, Adrian sort of liked what I had to say. And I was like, I didn't even have a passport. I'd never been overseas before. <laughs> uh, and that was it. I was like straight in. I think it was a six week overseas tournament or um, camp where we played a couple of games in Canada and a couple of games in the U S and yeah, I didn't. I don't think I missed uh, a game or a, or a tour, sort of for the next six or seven years. So, and what was your role initially? Initially, well, it was again, it was everything. I remember having a conversation with with Professor Alan Hahn, and he basically said, "Do anything, you know, make yourself um, make it seem like they couldn't go on a tour without having Adam Hewitt go with them." So it was initially to start looking at some video they'd never used video analysis in a team setting before and it's something that adrian was was interested in in bringing on board but 
it also meant that they didn't have a goalkeeping coach. So that Adrian basically had a choice in that first year or that first tour. Do we take a goalkeeping coach or a video analyst? So, you know, I remember in some of it, I was kicking balls at the goalkeepers to, <laughs> before, before training to, to help warm them up or, um, so I do kind of do that and then I'd race back up and, and press record on the video and record trainings and record games. Um, I was just saying to someone the other day, I, we traveled with a with a Apple PowerBook G3 that had a, a 10 gig hard drive in it. Uh, the games were about 20 gigs. So when I was capturing the game, I had to sit up and, and press pause on the capture at half time and they had these hot swappable hard drives so you had to pull the hard drive out and put put the next hard drive in and, and hope that it didn't crash wow. and um and, and you'd have you'd had no training as an analyst no the, the performance analysis unit at ais didn't exist back then mm. it was basically um greg blood and gavin reynolds out of the the national sport information center at the ais were kind of doing some some training in this sports code product mm. which i'd Seen, we'd kind of used a, a little bit with um, Peter Logan and Grant Duthie. We're doing a project in some rugby union stuff that I was helping them with as well. Oh, so Grant, Grant's a friend of ours and at ACU now. So yeah, that's right. Mm -hmm. uh, so we started to look at this sports code product to see if it would work for what he wanted to to look at, and it didn't actually end up working for for his project. But so I basically wrote a proposal to Adrian that I could use this software and. Uh, as soon as I got the go-ahead to, to go on the camp, I basically had to spend the next sort of three or four weeks cramming how to use this software because I promised that I could do all of this this yeah. analysis. And what year was that? It must have been 2003. Yeah, and it's just incredible, uh, the advancement in technology over those 17 years. I mean, the early stages of sports code was, oh, even, even probably up to 2012, it was... It was uh, like a USB stick, wasn't it? That we had to stick in and, and do it. And what what comes out of what you're saying, if you're a, if you're someone trying to get into this high performance industry or human performance industry, even as a coach or whatever, uh, the thing that comes out to me is that you're curious and that you're willing to do anything. And I would also think that uh, payment didn't even come up too much in your mind. No, absolutely. It was it was the opportunity to to travel, and um, I remember. And I think the other thing that it was about was was the relationships that you know I wouldn't have got that opportunity if I just went in and and did the fitness testing, which back then was a twenty meter sprint, a beat test, and a vertical jump. Mm. If I just did those and gave them the results and walked away, that was it. You know, I wouldn't have had I would never have had any of those opportunities. So it was. It was the relationships and, and as you said, you know, showing showing some curiosity and some interest in what they do and why they do it and, and how they do it. Mm. Um, and then, you know, I guess taking that opportunity and, and trying to run with it. You know, I remember yeah. being in Canada and, you know, we were away for you know, four or five weeks at a time. And one of my, you know, almost one of my bucket list things was to, was to go to a an ice hockey game and an NFL game and stuff like that over the years. And, you know, there I was in Canada on my first ever overseas trip and the, the team manager had organised to go to a, an NHL game while we're in Canada. 
and all the players were kind of filing out onto the bus and they were, you know, laughing, carrying on, looking to have a good time at the ice hockey. And Adrian was actually standing back and he's just had a pair of shorts and thongs on still. And I said, oh, Adrian, you're not, not going? And he said, no, I'm going to stay back and, and have a look at a bit of video while, while you guys are off at the, at the ice hockey. And I was sort of like, I could almost hear Alan Hahn's voice in my head was, was just kind of like, do everything, do anything you can. And so I actually let them, you know, they all got on the bus. I was ready to go. I was dressed and ready to go. And I just let them all get on the bus and I just stayed back with Adrian. He's like, oh, you're not, you're not going to go. And I said, no, if you're going to look at video, that's what I'm here to do. That's my job. Mm. And, and so we sat there for, for three or four hours. And I don't actually think we looked at video. We talked about everything talked about soccer we talked about his playing days we talked about everything and i think it was just that relationship mm. yeah. and and relationships are so strong and and i i see a lot of it doesn't matter what career you're in um doing things like this and building relationships because i'd suggest to you you were just at the ras doing your honors uh or you'd gone up and got a position there um, if this was outside your scope, you know, it was just something that you got curious about and went. Um, and then, because football wasn't your sport, was it? I played. That yeah. was always always a sport that I played. Even growing up in Adelaide, I'd never I'd never kicked an AFL ball in a competition. Yeah, game. it was always soccer or football that I'd played. Yeah, but you know, never never to a level where I could do anything. So so then you went from there and then Especially with it. And and then we'll progress a little bit. I mean you went to a couple of World Cups. Um you're you're there at the development of GPS. Um you know which was around two two to uh, two thousand two when it first started with rowing, wasn't it? Two thousand Yeah it was probably a little bit after that with again with the AIS and the CRC for microtechnology. Yeah. Um so 2004, must be 2002 then went on that first one. 2003, we had the, the World Cup in the US. Uh, 2004, I was uh, able to go to the 2004 Olympics. Mm. Um, and then the 2007 World Cup. And again, in between that, those up, that led to opportunities with the men's game as well. I was, I was able to go to the, was it 2007 under 20 World Cup with Ange when Ange Postcogli was was coach in the Netherlands or with for young soccerers. Um, but again, just being able to, you know, to learn from other people. You know, we had had people on staff that were, you know, ex-soccerers players. We had Ange who's obviously gone on to to some great things as a as a coach. And and again, it's just being having that opportunity to to be a sponge around them that, you know, just sit there and to listen to their stories. And, and that then helps to, I think, feed my curiosity and to feed what I want to look at in that sort of that analysis world, not just, so you're not just sitting there doing it for no reason. You're using it to add different context and to add different information that you might be able to add to your own analysis and to then to, to hopefully share that information to other people. Yeah, these are great points. Now, I'm going to ask you, this is a really important one to, for people to listen to. What was your payment during those, those times? Um, I was on, a, uh, on an AIS 
scholarship, post-grad scholarship. I think I was paid, so I was paid by the Department of Physiology to, to be the quality assurance officer, which at the time I thought wasn't really what I wanted to do. But again, the insight that I got from that, I was, you know, basically a new physiologist that came into the AIS had to get my tick before they were actually allowed to take a lactate threshold or to take a lactate or to run a VO2 max test. So I had to know all of the procedures. I had to know everything about the equipment and the calibration of that equipment. But I think off the top of my head, it was $15,000 for the year or something like that. And and so all your other work with the the football program, that was included. It wasn't like you were paid extra. Yeah, that's a really great point because I've got to say people that... uh, there are so many people, and you know, we we both teach, and and our our company um, employs people. Um, but I I don't know that it, it really sets people apart. The ones that are curious and are willing to do things, um, and um, money's not there. If money is your objective, it's you're never going to be really that successful. You've got to earn those yards because look it paid off, I suppose, because you went from there to Port Adelaide, you ended up doing your PhD in performance analysis, and now you have a, a good position at a university. But tell us about your, your PhD as well, your research into, into uh, analysis. So I, I guess um, I was working at the AIS and there was a, a a researcher from Adelaide, uh, Professor Bob Withers, who I guess his his main research was actually in um, uh, pure exercise physiology, looking at energy expenditure into daily household chores and had published, I don't know how many papers he's published, you know, 150 plus in, mm. in major journals and stuff like that. And he was supervising one of the other PhD students through the AIS and he's a bit of a, again, one of those, you know, one of those legends in the field, really, that he actually came up and, and actually showed an interest in a sense in what I was doing and basically came away and, and said, I said to Alan Hart, he goes, oh, I think I'd, I'd be interested in doing, I've always wanted to do a, some projects in, in football. He's a, he's a, he was an Englishman, but, you know, born in Birmingham, I think he was. Um, so, you know, always had a passion for that. And I guess at the same time, I'd switched from the Department of Physiology over into the new Department of Performance Analysis with with Keith Lyons. Mm. Uh, and so there was just, again, it was kind of a you know, an amalgamation of things and, and the stars aligned, so to speak. And uh, we, we set up this PhD program with the women's team originally uh, to look at different performance analysis aspects in, in football. Uh, but then I guess that that development of technology kind of hit at that same time. So we uh, we looked at sort of how we could implement some of that original uh, GPS technology or player tracking technology, especially in women's sport. So we looked at um, some of the early work was in, you know, just uh, you wouldn't be able to publish it now, but it was, you know, total distances covered of, different positions in women's football because well, it, it had never been it, it had never been done yeah it needed to be done um because that's the first step of of um a planning 
isn't it really to know what the activity is, you know, a profile the activity. And we didn't really have that data in women's football before. Yeah. So that, you know, we moved on from that and then we started to look at the tech, the actual technology and sort of thought, well, you know, how do we know there was all this, there was a few different technologies on the, on the horizon at the same time, there was still people using the, you know, video based time motion analysis. There was, um, Prozone was, was kind of still becoming quite active in the, especially in Europe. So we actually had a big project where we looked at all like four different types of technology. So that was one big project that we had where we, again, we couldn't do that in Australia. We could only do that in Europe. So we were, we set up a major international project in, uh, in Spain or in Bilbao uh, with uh, Inigo Mujica and um, Bilbao Football Club where we had researchers from Denmark, from, from Spain, from Qatar, all come in and do a, a big project for that. And in a sense, I probably did my PhD a little bit backwards because we kind of ended up in a space where we probably ended up reflecting on the whole area of the performance analysis in terms of some of the things that we wanted to look at was this game style and how we can provide more context to some of the, the physical performance information like that comes from the player tracking information to, you know, what is, what is game style and, and is there a way that we can actually start to, to measure a team's game style? And, and we've spoken um, that one of the concerns is, and I, I really reflect on this often, is that Coaching women's football, the same as men's football, would you say is problematic? Uh, in a sense, I don't think we know. Um, sure. I think it's a big question and something I've spoken to, obviously to yourself and other researchers in, and again, from different, from different areas. That, and I think that's important that we can't just kind of stay in the tunnel of, of, talking to the same kind of people because mm. you just end up with the same ideas. I think there's a natural bias that you want to talk to people that have the same ideas as you. And, you know, in a sense, that means that everyone just agrees. Oh, well, you, you just, I mean, you've just, I mean, I get, I get quite bored with the whole sports science research and, and that, because I think it's just confirmation bias, isn't it? Just um, people write, uh, I don't think it's real science because they try and prove their hypotheses right, which is the, the opposite to what science should be. Um, and then it's reviewed by people in the same field. And then we do really do not make advances. But if we were just using common sense here, women's, uh, women's if we look at the, the female player, they're physiologically different to the male player. Yes, and I think, you know, we've kind of started to touch on it and I think there's, you know, more work that can be done in this area in terms of if you've got female players but you've got a traditionally male sport and a lot of the, the drills and concepts are coming from the male game, mm. should we then just apply that straight into the female game or should we be making adjustments to, you know, should we even have the same tactics? I don't know. Again, we've kind of, we have the same in football in general, everyone seems to have the same kind of positions and the same kind of, um, 
I guess, setups in terms of formations? Like, should the women's game have a different style of play or a different style of formation to take into account, like, differences in physiology and, and so forth? Yeah, well, I think it's a fantastic question. And, and then you, what you're touching on, and this is in any industry, doesn't matter where you're listening from, but I find this happens very much in the human performance field. We just do what we've always done. And disruption uh, is, is really difficult because we've got courses that teach people a certain way. And then if we come in and go, okay, why don't we try it this way? and completely disrupt. And I, and I believe so many fields are open for disruption, but in sport, it doesn't happen very much. So for instance, if we look at swimming, I mean, swimming's an incredible one. We've still got the majority of people training the way they've always trained for swimming. You know, we can, we can go and say, okay, they train in the mornings, early mornings, which I think is a problem because most uh, swimmers are sleep deprived. Um, you've got all the different distances training together. Um, they have this thing about doing a lot of distance. And uh, I've asked those questions numerous times. Look, there are some people changing that, but it's huge disruption. Uh, the other thing, cycling is another one, road cycling enormous distances um, but is anyone going to come in and there are disruptions in technology but yeah like you know in football I mean you're an analyst okay is there a place like if, if you're a football person listening to this one of the positions that used to be very powerful um, I don't know 20 30 30 years ago was a sweeping position wasn't it you know the playing at the back and but that position doesn't exist at all now. But could that make a, a, a return? I just think if you're a coach listening out there, do you have your own philosophy or are you just doing, doing what the team of the day or the coach of the day, you know, that's high profile, you're just copying them. But who's to say they are right? Yeah, I know, I agree. And one of the things I really enjoy at the moment is is being able to to get around and and speak to you know different sports and different positions within those sports and you know we run a an international study tour through acu that you know we we managed to spend you know three weeks over in the us mm. you know visiting as many different sort of types of sports and levels of sports as we can and to you know partly so that the students can can gain that experience and that sort of insight, but also for myself, because I still enjoy, you know, I don't think we ever stop being curious. I guess if we ever stop, if I ever stop being curious, well, then I'm, you know, it's probably ready to change industries or professions because, you know, it's always there. And it's one of the reasons why, even though I've got a passion for football, we could do a, a, a study tour in a sense to, to Europe, but it would kind of just be to, to different football academies and, and football training grounds, which might be interesting, but I think seeing the different insights and, you know, asking those questions to, to an NFL team, to an NBA team, to a college team and uh, ice hockey, all of these, you know, UFC at the Performance Institute in Vegas, at, you know, why do they set things up, how they do it and why do they train like that versus, you know, American football, which is a 
completely different sport and you know almost a number of different sports within that sport because you've got such different physiological requirements and tactical requirements for each position which even though I watch a little bit of it I've got no idea some of the insights and the nuances that some of those positions have yeah and look I think that study too and we'll, we'll delve into that a little bit I I'm one as well I think with my work if I, if, look, if I keep, of course, I always look at the sports science research. Okay, but human performance is far bigger than that. You know, I'm interested in what engineering is doing, what uh, is happening in the business world, because often things that they're doing there with strategy systems, you apply them back into sport and we're, we're way ahead. And uh, I was actually, I'm excited because when we, uh, when we are allowed to travel again, I'm going to do those trips with you and you've done a, a fantastic job. And I was fortunate to spend uh, about a month, uh, 12 months ago now um, in, in uh, the States and, and just simple things, you know, uh, with the NBA, what I like is that they have where they've got so many assistant coaches and they do that, um, each, each assistant coach will have four or maybe three or four players that are their players. And they will do a daily 10 to 15 minute session, which they call a vitamin, you know, like a daily vitamin where they'll work on something specific for that area. Now, I'm actually horrified that I've spoken to a number of teams. I think that is fantastic for football bring that back. There's a lot of coaches at the end of every session, rather than these random extras that make no sense, that each assistant coach has a responsibility of, you know, a, a few players that they work with to improve them. But it seems uh, football sometimes doesn't, doesn't understand how far it can go and, and advanced. You know, the, the daily vitamin is a wonderful thing. It's, it's actually coaching. Uh, and I think there's so much to learn from these other sports, just to how they're operated too. Like one of the interesting things in, in football, it seems, look, if you haven't played at a high level, it's very hard to coach at a high level, even though that is changing somewhat. But you see in basketball, you know, and, and a lot of the American sports, the, these coaches have actually been trained as coaches so they might have gone through the high school system into the college system into the professional system and they mightn't have had a, a wonderful playing career but they're a wonderful coach i think there's a difference isn't there yeah uh, definitely i just um just had a lecture or a discussion this morning with with one of my classes in performance analysis and we're talking about the difference between uh, learning and performance, you know, because I think they're, they're different, you know, in, in sport we get, you know, and sometimes it's, it's rightly so that you get so sort of judged on, on the performance or the outcome, which is quite often the game, which from a, an analysis or a support staff, you know, in general, we have no control over, you know, so, so should we be judged on how many goals the team scored or, how many games the team won when you can't get out there and, and actually do it. So, mm. you know, well, same with the assistant coach, you know, quite often the assistant, it's not the assistant coach that makes that final call. It's, it's the head coach. So should an assistant coach be, be judged on, on that performance metric or, or how should they be judged? 
Well, and, and saying that, and what metrics do we judge coaches on? Um, so say if we say that a coach is a leader and then we see, see such uh, turmoil um, and coaches being recruited and then sacked and then they don't have a job and then that. So what is the organization actually saying? So they're, they're saying, well, we're terrible at recruitment, but there's never any responsibility taken by the organization. Changing the leader, can you imagine if publicly traded companies would uh, actually change their CEO as often as some sporting teams with enormous budgets change their coach? We're not going to get uh, great organizations by continually having this strategy of coach change or just admit that you can't get the recruitment right and we need to work on the recruitment um, because it's, uh, it is a really interesting area. I think, I think often uh, many sports, they're, they're, they've, they've got a lot of space to grow. Yeah, absolutely. And it's, you know, we're probably talking about things that are sort of outside of my sort of area of expertise, but, you know, I think there's, there's just in terms of, you know, touching back on, on being able to, to look at other sports, but, but, you know, it doesn't have to just come from sport, does it? It's got, you know, there's yeah. industries that we can, that we can learn from. And, you know, even though it's not a, it's not a like for like, but there's, there's themes and, and areas that we can pick up on. You know, I think some of the work that, um, and I think we've talked about this as well, is, is some of the work that Carl Woodson and Sam Robinson and Keith Davids have been, been looking at in some of the ecological dynamics and, and how, we can, how we can look at these systems. And it's not just, um, it's not just the on-field systems that we're looking at, it's, it's all of those systems. Because as you said, you know, the, the decision that the board makes in terms of hiring a coach and that coach then hires, let's say, a strength coach. The strength coach then hires some assistants and the analysts and whoever else, as well as the players. It's it's that whole mixture. It's that whole system that, that influences the performance of the team. It's not just one of those parts. It's, it's the sum of all of those parts. Yeah, and I was speaking to um, you know, uh, a friend this morning, you know, just about that, and we're, we're thinking about, well, he was telling me about F1. He'd had experience in, in, in that. And you look at Mercedes and how successful they have been. And, and there's, you know, they, they would have a thousand people getting that car to go. And basically all their job is aimed at one shared purpose, to get Lewis Hamilton in a car that can go very, very fast at that desired time and win the one shared purpose. That's it. So sporting teams have the same to get to Saturday or whenever it is and to perform to your maximum. But it seems as always with any organization, with any human performance, ego starts getting into it and there's disruption. And then for me, it comes back to the leadership. Who's leading that we're on one trajectory because ultimately that has to be our goal. We can't have people in an organization going, well, my goal is to further my career. No, your goal is to work for this team to get the best possible outcome. And I just see such a disjointed process. And for me, it comes back down to leadership. 
you know, uh, how, how is that leadership in play? Now, if you talk, you've been in the analysis space a long time. What's the future? Where should we be now? Because we've spoken about it. There's a lot of technology out there. Most analysts, I'll be very honest, do not use all the data available. Most coaches are not using all the data available. Um, you know, we're still in situations where an analyst is standing behind a camera training, being a camera operator. And, and we haven't, in a lot of spaces, or not all, we have not really progressed. I don't know, well, let me say, I don't know how much analysis is going on. I think there's a lot of cutting up video, but not analysis. Do you want to yeah, well, speak to that? I think um, you know, it probably comes back to, to starting with why. Like, what is it that we're trying to what is it that we're trying to achieve, you know? And I think it is that, that shared purpose that, that everything that we do has to be about making that, that performance of the team get, get better. So, you know, I think it's then trying to work out what systems can we put in place to try and sort of accommodate and enhance that performance. So, and I think sometimes yeah, we do try and, Maybe we sometimes we try and overcomplicate it, whether it's through, gee, we need to put it through R and we need to be able to use these data visualizations and stuff like that. But sometimes if the coach isn't ready to use that information, then it doesn't matter how pretty the visualization is. And maybe it is just a matter of, you know, recording something with your phone and standing next to them and saying, this is just what happened. So, mm. you know, I, Although I think there are definitely opportunities for, for the technology to, to make some of those systems better, that sometimes it's, it's got to be at the same rate that the, that the coaches and the players can, can use that information. Otherwise, you know, we can collect a million pieces of data, but if they can't use it, then there's no point. You know, I think some of those processes will get easier in terms of technology. I know that there's there's companies out there already that have got machine learning, artificial intelligence that you know are going to be able to learn what a pass or a goal attempt looks like. That it already can tell the difference between a a screen and a block kind of thing. In maybe it's a bad example. My my basketball knowledge isn't great, Craig. Um, <laughs> but do you know what I mean? I can tell the difference between a, a jump shot and a layup in in basketball so you don't need somebody sitting there pressing the button to say that was a jump shot that was a layup it's going to be able to do that already so it's going to be about you know interpret interpreting that information and probably more importantly how can we apply that information and i think a lot of my interest at the moment is in the training environment rather than the the game day environment game day we, we can't really change too much about that that's the coach's domain that's you know all of all of our work should be in the background i think about giving time back giving making those players the best that they can be on that game day so the coach can can execute whatever plans they might have so how can we how can we make that training environment better and how can we make that more uh, a better replication of of that game environment how can we how can we make um, don't like to use the word drills, but you know, like how can we create those scenarios so that when the players get into that situation in, in a game, that they're going to be able to execute better than the opposition? 
Yeah, and I agree with you. I think a lot of training is, is um, yeah, is it really structured in a way to lead to performance that's better on the weekend? The other thing that I've got an issue is how, how can the performance analysis and the physiological analysis be in silos? So surely if we're going to develop game models that there has to be a combination. So if we've got team X, like this, this is what gets me a lot of the time. We've got team X with a set, the, the players that they've recruited that physiologically cannot do the game model that they want to play. Absolutely. Just, and I think that's it's just it. And so, so, and this is what gets me sometimes with coaches, you're not thinking big picture because you're thinking about a game model that you might've learned about in your coaching course or what you've seen on TV, but you do not have the players. Like, I don't, I don't know, but this will just make sense to me. I've got to recruit towards the game model I've got to play. But if you don't know physiologically that game model, what are you recruiting for? Well, and again, I think, you know, we've seen, you know, I think, we need to start to think beyond individual physiological stuff as well in terms of what's the combination of physiological, you know? So if, if we know that this combination of three or four players, this is what happens, then what happens if you take one of those parts out and try and put somebody else in, because that could influence, you know, from us both from a tactical or technical and a physical kind of parameters, something changes. So then if, if we take out, you know, the, the best runner, for instance, and put somebody in that isn't as good as, as running or covering that territory, then what happens to those other three players in that, in that subunit? Yeah. Well, the way I look at it is, you know, with my models is that if a, a team is playing, you know, they say their game model is this, and this is their, their structure and the system that they're playing, that we identify each position, what physiologically that position has to do. So if you take that out, you need to put that in. Like, like, otherwise you can't play that game model. And I've seen the very intelligent coaches go, okay, I don't have the physiology here in X position. And I've seen this with national teams. We, we might say, if you're playing four at the back, and you've got your two side backs and you've got one that's physiologically incredible, but you've got on the other side, you don't have anyone else to match that as well as tactically and technically, then we've got a lopsided system. I saw that with the Australian national team. Where, yeah, you know, and again, it's not to say that that's a, a poor choice or a poor player, it's just what you've got. So, you know, but then I think that's where we, down the track, that's where I think we're starting to look at more, more about those those team models and um, subunit models rather than than just you know this player can run this far or have this many accelerations and decelerations and stuff like that because that information alone isn't isn't enough information. You know, I was just um, there was a, a tweet that um, Darren O'Shaughnessy from. Uh, was it St Kilda? I think he was. I think he's back there now. But you know, he basically put up something along the lines of some analysis that he was doing of some of the GPS player tracking data, showed that 
in some cases, players are reaching their peak speed during a goal celebration or an interchange. Oh, well, I've seen that data. You know, the, yeah. the, the highest uh, the highest high speed meters when interchange. Yeah. So, so but does it? Do, so I think there's two points on that. One doesn't matter. So from a from a pure sport science point of view, in terms of we want players that can reach peak speed X number of times over a week or a two week period. Do we care when that occurs? Does it matter if it occurs in a game, in a training or whatever? So from that protective physiological mechanism, maybe it doesn't, maybe it doesn't matter. But from a tactical and technical point of view, the context of when that occurs probably is important. So, you know, to just look at the numbers as numbers without that context that you know, I think video can really help provide that, then, you know, it gives us a different insight as to, as to why they're reaching peak speed. You know, maybe a player hasn't reached peak speed, not because they're lazy, but purely for the fact they haven't had the opportunity. You know, like mm. if, they, if they never turn the ball over, maybe they never have to sprint. So rather than sometimes I think we go in there with a the big stick to punish them for not reaching peak speed, Yes, they need to reach peak speed, maybe for some some protective mechanisms and for some um, physiological and, and detraining and stuff like that. But we don't need to go in. It should almost be a reward to say, you know, look, we've looked at your game tape and we've looked at the the player tracking data and, and we've noticed that over this much period of time that you haven't reached peak speed, which is fantastic because we've realised that you haven't reached peak speed because you haven't made any mistakes or you haven't had the requirement you haven't been in that position so that's fine yeah well you touch on a great point but we cannot do that if if the physiology and the performance analysis is in silos exactly like, i i think i mean you grow you, i mean uh you know our friend darren burgess you myself and, and multiple others of similar age and i'm not going to say it was different when we were young but the fact is we could all do analysis. We could all do strength and conditioning and we could all do sports science because we had to. Um, because like I've been at pro clubs where it was just me doing all those jobs. So when you're doing all those jobs, you're very, I've got the analysis data. I've got the physiological data. It's just common sense to blend it together what's happened now, you've got the analysis normally sitting in with the coaches. So that relationship is not there. Like one of the most simple things that gets, does my head in meters per minute. All right. So we've got a game and say in football, it's 93 minutes or whatever. And so the meters per minute of each player and, and of the team, the team model is based on the amount of meters divided by the time. And say so it's 93 minutes. Most people do that. But hang on, there's another variable in play. The ball in football is not in play 93 minutes of the game. So really the relative yeah, and yeah, some of the relative meters per minute is what's the minutes that that ball was in play. Now I'm not naive enough to say, okay, everyone is completely stopped when the ball has gone out. But we could use that and go, okay, well, it's 60 minutes today. Like I remember you'd play a Middle Eastern team. I remember clearly 
Um, normally in international football, the ball might be in play 58 to 62 minutes. You always aim, you know, federations try to aim to keep the ball in play 60 minutes. We played Jordan and the ball was in play 40 minutes because they scored a goal and then you all know they're going to slow the game down. So if I just come out and go, oh, this looks like a terrible physiological effort. This is where we lost. But no, hang on. Let's look at it relatively. And I can't believe that people, I mean, it's even hard getting that statistic out of an analyst. Yeah, and I, but I think that's where, you know, there, there's better, there's better models and there's better, there's better metrics that we can start to look at. And, mm. you know, because again, quite often we only end up with, with our own team's physiological data as well. So, mm. you know, if, if meters per minute is an indication of, of performance, which I don't necessarily know that it is, but if, if we end up achieving 100% or 98% of our goal, but the opposition get 100% and win, then 98% isn't a good effort. So Yeah, it's a great point. I just recently, you know, on some work I, I did um, where I, you know, where I had both sets of data, um, Team X lost, had, you know, one team scored five goals, the other team scored zero goals. The team that scored zero goals ran 108,000 metres. The team that scored five goals ran 100,000 metres. So total distance is a, you know, what's the point of that? Yeah. You know what I mean? What was the differentiator physiologically? Well, you know, the team that scored five goals had a lot more high intensity speed. I'm not saying anything that we don't know, but that's not really the, that's not the difference between the teams. No. And I think that's where, you know, again, being able to look at different metrics like, you know, maybe distances between players and the speed of the, the team relative to the opposition and stuff like that. You know, some of the work that um, Verda Franken and, and some of the Dutch group have, have kind of started, you know, many years ago, but, you know, starting to look at that centroid speed and, and you know, but of both teams. We can't just look at one team because, you know, everything that we do in most team sports is based on what the opposition is reacting or making them react to to what mm. we do. So can we move the opposition in a particular way so it creates goal scoring opportunities somewhere else? And again, that's probably true for all invasion-based sports that that those those tactics and so forth, you know, have a big influence on on the physiological output and vice versa. So, you know, I think just to look at one team and one aspect of that team, I think we need to start to add more you know, pieces to the puzzle and, and learn from what the what the coaches are wanting to do, what the, the strength and conditioning and performance staff are doing, you know, right down to even some of the medical staff, you know, when do we take a player off? Should we take the player off based on on medical information? We sometimes say this player can only run only play for 65 minutes today. Well, you know, what if he can't? What if they can't play for 65 minutes? And what have they done in that 65 minutes? Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, that's just, I mean, look, I think the, the message here for any coach or leader is what do you want to be? Do you want to be an innovator or do you just want to be a copier? 
you know, and, and this is what gets me. Um, you know, I have a lot of coaches that go, I want to play a high pressing style. Well, what does that mean to you? You know, what, what does that actually mean? And I think um, we've got a lot of coaches um, and leaders in everywhere where they just mimic uh, a few people. They, they rather than actually make their own style, if you want to really make a difference, you're going to have your own philosophy rather than copying a, a Pep Guardiola or a triangular defense or, or you know, play the triangle in, um, you know, in, in basketball or whatever. So do you, do you think, though, Craig, that, um, that it's okay to... I think that, I don't know what your opinion is, maybe it's that people are trying to copy the whole, you know, like, mm. you want to do everything that Pep does, but maybe there's aspects that Pep and the way that they coach that does fit, but then maybe it's about coach, maybe it's about, you know, what Belichick does with the Patriots. And Absolutely. maybe it's something what, you know, Alison does with a Hawthorne, yeah. and then you put it all together into your Craig Duncan style. Yeah, and that's exactly what I think we need to do. And then that gets back to the difference between education and learning. You know, um, I have a real problem with education in some ways that we just, Put it out and people spit it back to us well no no learning's taken place now i'm like if we look at philosophy we go okay there was socrates and plato was a student of socrates he wasn't uh you know he took obviously so much of what socrates then and then he developed his own and then there was aristotle that was a student of plato and we keep advancing i don't think there's an original thought but my suggestion is to try and just think you know, and be curious and to develop something. And of course you have your mentors, but um, yeah, I've got concerns that, you know, that there is a lack of thinking often in, in sport. I mean, you've worked with a number of coaches. I mean, what's difficult working with coaches? And I know you don't have to name names. I know you're much politically more correct than myself. But, um, <laughs> But, you know, what, what's been, you know, when you've had difficulties with coaches where you've just gone, okay, what's, what's been the biggest issue? At the time, it was probably different to what I think now. Mm. Now, looking back at it, in a sense, I think the problem was me. Yeah, good. You know, I good. think, yeah. you know, I think it was, you know, I remember one, one coach was, uh, wanting the numbers and you know would would love whatever numbers i gave them and at whatever time of the day and then you you think okay well that works so you go to the next coach and you try and give them the same thing and you know that's not what they want rather than actually sitting down with the coach and again sometimes the coaches don't know what they don't know or everybody is like that that but I guess sitting down and trying to have that conversation or have that relationship with the coach to work it out is to, you know, what information is important to them. And yeah. then it's up to, you know, it was up to me in a sense to, I still had to do the same analysis, whether I, whether I gave them a, a five page report with graphs and tables or whether it was a, a two line, this is how long we should train for today. I, in a sense, I still had to do the same amount of, information gathering and mm. analysis and reporting because it had to be an informed decision mm. it wasn't just a random you know you know today's tuesday so we'll do 65 minutes or well, no it was 
So you're getting back minutes. to the you so you're getting back to the thing that the coach is our client basically. They're they're our boss. We need yeah. to, we need to have that discussion about what do they want? What do they want from this? And look, I'm very much about educating coaches about what they expect because often it's they don't know what they don't know. Okay, but it's trying to help them. But it's having that respect to have the relationship is going, okay, well, what do you want? How do you like your data reported? Um, you know, do you want numbers or do you want pictures? What do you want to know from all this information I can gather? Um, because I think often the problem is, is people are producing reports that the coach doesn't even read because it's not, um, it's not what he wants to see. Um, and I think we've all been, mm. we've all been guilty of that and, and more. And I think, you know, some of that comes from experience and, and having, having a belief in yourself that you know that you are working towards the same uh the same outcome in a sense that you know it's it's a hard industry to to get a job and to keep a job for a long time and and to know that you know sometimes things are way out of your control which mm. is hard to to work with as well that you could you could do the best job in the world as an analyst or as a strength coach or whatever position it is but as i said you know if the team loses a certain number of games in a row then the coach is sacked and that might mean that you're sacked as well and yeah no it's a it's a great point you raise okay i'm going to put you on the spot if you <laughs> to win a football game what are five key things from an analyst perspective. Oh, and you, of course, you use the physiology and you can use anything. What's five key things to be a successful football team? Uh, well, I guess there's, it's gotta be about preparation in terms of, you know, preparation in your, in your training, preparation in recruiting right players. It's gotta be preparation in, in having the, the tactics right for that day, as well as your long-term strategy. So, you know, I, I guess it's not really my position to sort of to name five things on a game day or, you know, no, five, but I'm, five I'm, metrics. I'm asking you. That's the thing. It is your position today because I'm asking you. Yeah, but I, I don't necessarily, again, you know, there's there's a lot of different metrics, you know, there's there's this new stuff around, you know, expected goals and stuff like that. But I, I just think especially in a sport like football, that you could dominate. If I named five, we could dominate all five and still lose the game. Because okay, so you, you, if, you if there's about, any sport in particular, that's yeah. probably the, you know, sometimes I think it's the best thing in the world about this game in football. And it's also the worst. As I said, you could dominate those five areas, 89th minute or 92nd minute, a deflection off the post and yeah, three yeah. players and all of a sudden you lose the game. Yeah, okay. No, that's, I mean, you, you're absolutely right. And we can never control results. Uh, recruitment, I think, is key. But the precursor to recruitment is how you want to play and what's your game model. Yes. Tactics need to be agile. Yep. And you need to... But your strategy doesn't necessarily... Yeah. I, I'm a big one. And this is what I don't understand with analysts is I would have... Um, you know, we come up with the game model and then you have your analyst... Uh, red team it basically and say this is how I would beat you yeah and then we can plug those holes um, that's that's important preparation 
I think you're talking holistic preparation that the training model is right uh, in respect to loading um, and, and how the week looks um, is, is really important. Preparation in respect to your opposition and who you're up against. One of my big things at the moment, and I don't know how you feel about this. Um, like I know in the Australian uh, A-League, we've still got five substitutions. I hate that because I think it that's half the team, half the on-field team we can substitute. But do you think having a tactics around substitutions is important? I don't know if most coaches do. Yeah, I mean, I probably haven't stayed up to date because it's not only the fact that you can have five substitutions isn't that there's restrictions about when you can make those substitutions as well so oh, i'll be honest i'm not completely sure yeah but... so i don't think you can have five individual substitutions and the opposition has five so there's 10 stoppages so you know how do you you know and i think it happens so quickly for lots of different reasons so i understand that but again maybe there's advantages in teams starting to analyze and model that in terms of you know, is there a, is it worth spending necessarily more money on a, on an impact player that you can bring on for, for 30 minutes because you know that the models can change based on yeah. you know, having five interchanges and stuff like that. So, you know, the risk in that is, will they change the rules back? I hope so, they do. I, I'm sure they will. But even with three substitutions, I don't think, you know, sometimes it just seems... Oh, we'll make a substitution at 60, uh, 75, and we'll keep one back, you know, for later on down the track. But then looking at, okay, how's the game played? You know, this is where assistants come in and an analyst comes in that, you know, that so-and-so isn't doing the job. The opposition's made a substitution that's brought enormous energy into the game, you know, because it's been funny over the years, warming players up, ready for them to go on. And, and you know the beauty of subs physiologically is to bring energy. So do you pick your bench in respect to the energy and the physiological output they have? And then you might have an impact player like a, like, you know, with the national team, if Tim K wasn't starting, you knew that he, putting him on, there's a massive chance that he'll score just because his belief in his, his overall quality. But then we can't, we have to have others that I, I have advised and said, well, they're not really, if they're not starting, they're not really worth as a substitution because they're not going to come on and give you a physiological output that you require because that's what sometimes can happen just by energy going in, something happens that opens up something else and then someone will score. Um, so from a, from a, if we use a female example, did you see the goal that Lisa Devanna scored for Melbourne I, victory on the weekend? I didn't see it, but, um, you know, I'm a big fan of Lisa Devanna, so... So again, you know, she hasn't been in the national team for X number of years. But Why? if if that, and I don't know if it's a FIFA rule for the next uh, Olympics and World Cup that they'll have five substitutions. But you know, maybe if they do have that, it would change your team selection and your your squad selection because all of a sudden, having five substitutions at something like the next Olympics, I potentially I would pick Lisa so that she could come on and do that. I mean, I've seen her do that so many times that even oh. at, is she 36 or something? Oh, Adam, look, you'll get me onto a topic now, but I'll say <laughs> I, don't, I really don't care. I mean, uh, for me, Elisa Devena uh, should never have not been picked. 
Um, I know why people don't pick her. I, I, and uh, that had nothing to do with anything uh, that was, was reasonably football-wise. She's, uh, she's one of the first players you'd pick in a team. Now, whether she's going to be sub number one or she's going to start or, and give you a, a good half, you know, you've worked with her. Um, she's an, a passionate player for that badge. And, uh, and I think if she doesn't play for the national team again, it'll be one of the biggest, uh, biggest uh, one of the saddest things that ever happened to Australian football. You know, I mean, I mean, you look at the. Um, did you watch the? You know, I think I know you did the Last Dance. You yes, know, the Michael Jordan. Mm. In this day and age, would would that team and a and a Dennis Rodman scenario would it work? Well, it would with the right people involved. But see, I, even uh, and again, maybe you know, part of me thinks that nowadays is that with with social media and everything else, I think the club might actually be under so much scrutiny and so much pressure for allowing someone like a Dennis Rodman, you know, like a, a three-day pass to go and do those things in Vegas and stuff like that, that the external forces might force the club to try and... Well, let, let's just say Lisa isn't a Dennis Rodman. Oh, no, no, no. I'm what, not Lisa, saying... what Lisa brings to the table might be a little bit hard for other people to answer for. You know it, I know yep. it. Um, and but I think it was, yeah, I'll stop there. But uh, you are right, and and I don't think we need five subs, three subs, and you still have Elisa Devena. Yeah, you can't. No, I just think, in you know, in this day and age, that you know, people are, and you know, I think you need culture and, and everything else, but you know, it doesn't mean that I remember having conversations with. Ron Smith and, and Steve O'Connor about the the men's football program and and stuff like that. That you know some of those players they were only given those opportunities because of the environment they were in. You know, in a different environment, they wouldn't have got those opportunities. And all of a sudden, without opportunity, you don't have you don't have that golden generation. Well, it's interesting you say that. Like leadership is about getting the best out of your people, right? Having influence yes. and. And I, look, I'm getting older now and I, I suppose, you know, in my career, I can sort of ask the questions and working with coaches, like the amount of times younger in my younger career, where you'd sit there and say, coaches would say, oh, that player's rubbish. I was like, uh, hang on, you recruited them. Yeah. What is coaching? Because in the professional, is coaching actually done? Coaching is about making someone better. So you're actually giving up. You're not actually coaching. And they're the great coaches, even in the professional level, where people come to them and they leave a better player. And uh, I'll give credit to like a Tony Popovich in that res uh, respect. A lot of the times people would come, uh, their career wouldn't be very happening very well, um, but he would get them physiologically right and he was strong with them and disciplined and they left a better player. They mightn't have enjoyed um, some aspects of the experience, but they should owe him and go, you know what? I left here a better player. <clears throat> what sort of coach do you want to be? Do you just want to, you just want to get all these great players? Yeah, well, I think that's, good? you know, mm. Mm. yeah, well, I guess that's, you know, do you end up, you know, there's, there's different types of coaches and those that are, those that are skilled at the recruiting and recruiting good players, 
mm. is obviously part of the skill, but then part of the skill is, you know, to recruit those players, you've got to have the recruitment budget probably to match it because they're already, you know, potentially already established players or already established mm. up and coming stars. But, you know, should they, the art of coaching in a sense is might be to try and find that untapped resource to try and then develop that person into a better player. And then it's a choice. You keep them in the team and make the team better or, you know, in the A-League, what we see is, you know, do you have the opportunity to then uh, sell that player to, a, to an overseas club? Yeah, no, it's a really good point. Okay. Before we want to wrap up, uh, wrap up I want to just chat about a couple of things. Um, you're a married man with kids um just the well-being of working in high performance sport how uh, you're so now you're an academic uh we do a bit of stuff together in 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 sports still uh that you you've worked with a couple of my clients but yeah how's your health now uh as compared to when you were you were, you were with adelaide football club so to speak um uh different i think you you know it's hard to compare because you know different things at the time so you know i I got to go to the ais as a you know i was i was with my now wife but we we basically went long did the long distance thing from adelaide to canberra for a few years but that gave me an opportunity to you know again almost throw myself into that work i lived on residences i was um I was actually the the study hall supervisor for the lived in the block with the soccer players or with the football players. Um, so there's probably some stories there from that shouldn't be repeated that I know about some of the most of those guys are almost retire retirement age. I don't think there's too many of those guys still running around. And then they um, become coaches and we work. Yeah, well, that's true. I know that some of those have got, you know, jobs in industry still. But, you know, it gave me a different insight. It meant that I could just, you know, immerse myself in, you know, I literally would work until whatever time and then, you know, try and get some sleep and roll out and walk mm-hmm. to work and was there. But at the time, it probably felt like the right thing to do. Mm. But then, as you see, you know, things, things change. And one of the things that was difficult um, working in professional sport, you know, I had twin girls that were born premature and I you know I still remember receiving an email you know basically the the day that the girls were born saying you know congratulations uh by the way can you can you get this data back as soon as possible you know and it's like okay and but you just did it because you know at the time you didn't know anything else whereas I think now again as you said being a little bit older being a little bit wiser I guess your priorities are able to change Mm. and that you know, I wouldn't necessarily, you know, accept that anymore. And I don't think the industry accepts that anymore either, Craig. I think that the industry's matured a little bit in I most cases. It, I think in some cases, um, but I still, in my work going around uh, consulting, I, I still look at the high performance team and they're probably the most unhealthy people there. Because, and but I think a lot of the time that can have something to do with themselves like if we talk about performance analysis you and i both know you can do it 24 hours a day if you don't have a system you will not stop 
And I see assistant coaches and they're bleary eyed and exhausted. But I think a lot of the time is because they don't have a system with their analysis. Uh, so I think that's important and we need to teach that. Uh, I think I think there's still some issues. I, I, I think some sports are better than others, but definitely I think there's some behavior in professional sport that no HR department would, would ever stand for. Um, but it is interesting what you say um, in, res, in respect to, you know, having the, you know, having the kids and having that pressure. But I like the fact, uh, I, I say this to students, that it's very important that you choose your partner well. Yes. Because, so they understand what's going to happen. Um, oh, and I've been, you know, again, to... For, for my wife to move to Canberra, back to Adelaide, and then, you know, bring everybody up to Brisbane. And, you know, again, you know, very fortunate and to have that support. And I wouldn't be able to do some of the things that I've been able to do. You know, I remember Megan moving to Canberra and I think we'd moved all the stuff over with the first time we'd actually lived together. And it's like, okay, welcome to Canberra. And I left to go overseas for six weeks the next day. It's yeah. like, I think I'd put the bed together and plug the fridge in and, you know, welcome to Canberra. Here you go. I'm off, you know. So yeah. the, the pressure on the partners is, you know, is, is huge as well, you know. So, you know, but I, yeah, I think there's, there's definitely more awareness around some of that yeah. work-life balance that what we used to have. And I think, I think you're right that it's not always great but i think it has that awareness is better i think there's probably more understanding probably at all excuse me at all levels that if you say look you know this is how i'm feeling i need to take some time to to work on this you know whether it's to say look i need this time out to go for a run to go for a ride to to do whatever because mm. i actually think you know that's that's healthy you know, both from a from a physical and a mental, but also from a creative point of view. I think some of my yeah some uh, of my best ideas have come from going for a ride or going for a run and actually I just... talk like about that all the time in self-science. You know, you've got to look after self before you can look after others. And that's very important in respect to our work. Okay, well, we're gonna wrap up. What's the future hold for you? What do you want to do? Oh, I guess I'm really enjoying um the space that I'm in at the moment, because, you know, again, I think ACU is quite a kind of proactive um, kind of space at the moment in, in especially some of these international opportunities yeah. um, in terms of both, you know, working with the, the masters of high performance sport. Um, we've got the graduate certificate of performance analysis, which I think, you know, there's opportunities there to, to expand and, and tweak that. Even further, um, you know, I enjoy, you know, the work that we do together in terms of, you know, being able to, to keep dabbling or to, to keep staying current in professional sport is important, mm. but, you know, because it, it means that you stay current, you stay contemporary, and it gives you an opportunity to, I guess, put in place some of the things that you might be thinking about rather than, you know, I guess we can't just do this work in a lab you know you've got to test it out in the field or, or apply it out in the field and see 
what are some of the barriers and what are some of the things that we we need to keep working on mm. and also just how to you know how to challenge and how to how to keep challenging and pushing that next lot of students and again i think it is that that curiosity it's not just you know rote learning about anatomy or biology or you know a lactate threshold approach whatever it might be it's you know what interests them and because that's what's going to generate the next lot is that curiosity and, and trying to spark that yeah curiosity comes up a lot when i i speak to high performing people and and having that mindset is really really good last you thing think, last can thing you, can you teach go. that what can you teach curiosity yeah well, we're all curious when we're kids, right? Uh, exactly. So what happens? Well, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. If I had the answer, I'd be a <laughs> professor, yeah, yeah. A VC somewhere. Um, but, yeah, I, I don't know. Like at the moment, yeah, again, maybe we keep, sometimes I think we keep blaming the students, so to speak, but maybe it's us. You know, maybe it's the... The academics and the institution that has to change rather than the students the students have changed so maybe it's you know maybe it's more about how we can i think spark that ourselves rather than expecting them to to follow what we're curious about what is yeah. it that they're curious about i think you're right i know like i've started making changes just basic things how students communicate with me i say look if it's easier for you to send a direct message to me on instagram do it you know, rather than going to email, it mightn't be their thing email, you yeah. know, so simple things like that. But yeah, I think we can advance. Education is not learning. I think we need to get back to, you know, what our university is about, scholarship and discussion and all that. But that's for another time. Okay, last thing before you go. Um, you only got a few hours to live your deathbed scorecard that I talk about, you know, what's on yours that's going to let you take your last breath and go be comfortable? What's going to be important that for you to have on that scorecard that you can tick off and go, yeah, not your bucket list. What's the, what's the important things for you? Um, I would probably say nowadays it's, it's, it's probably the kids. You yeah. Know? Like it's, yeah. you know, as I said, we've got uh, twin girls, one of them, has some has some special needs and some challenges so you know i guess we spend a lot of time about how we can you know make sure that she has the best opportunities mm. that she can you know so you know knowing that that we've tried to to do that um yeah it's probably yeah it's probably about them rather than about about me you know mm. and i guess the that of tried to stay tried to stay curious and you know, sort of you know have interest in in lots of different things yeah no that's great mate fantastic i really enjoyed that i always enjoy speaking to you um it's always always fun look how long we went long i know, I know. <laughs> Got on a roll. uh but anyway mate thank you very very much as always, thanks for listening. It was really great to speak to my friend, Adam Hewitt. He's a really good guy. You can contact him uh, at adam.hewitt at 
acu.edu.au or just contact me and I'll send any questions to him if you have any for him. If you've got any questions for me, just contact me you know, through the podcast, through email or through social media. I'll put those addresses in the show notes. Also, our book, Self Science, sold out of its first run, which was fantastic, but we're getting some new uh, copies in, and so that is now available again. And, of course, the 100X Journal. So stay tuned. There's a lot of things happening. As always, if you've got any comments or recommendations for the podcast or you want me to talk about certain topics or any questions, just please send them in. I'm always open uh, to doing doing new things. And if you like it, share the podcast with your friends. It's also great if you subscribe. And also it really helps if you write a review wherever you listen to the podcast. As always, go and make the world a better place.